Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that dabbles in the material and the magical world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. Now, Overdrive is on sabbatical leave over the Christmas New Year period, so we thought we would replay some of the interviews from the past. Now, with the 2024 Dakar Rally starting on the 5th of January, we dug up some chats we had with the Australian rally ace Molly Taylor, who competed in the Dakar in 2022, among other things. The first interview is about her earlier career, where she travelled to the UK on her own, and the second is when we caught up with her at the launch of the Subaru BRZ sports car at Sydney Motorsport Park, but also talked about her Dakar experience. For more information about the program, go to drivenmedia.com.au or any of the socials, podcasts, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was first broadcast on the 30th of December, 2023. You're listening to Overdrive. Being a works driver in racing or rallying appears to have a lot of glamour. It is recognised that there is some effort and stress, but that's usually seen as being the physical and emotional strain of driving in a big event. But the hard grind to get to the position of actually racing is not always understood, perhaps rarely understood, yet it is in this aspect that makes it all the more interesting and involves a wide range of skills. Molly Taylor is now the works driver for the Australian Subaru Rally Team, but her journey to this position has taken her around the world in some less than glamorous situations. Molly joins us on the line now. Molly, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Now, your family is a bunch of very good achievers. I think your sister is now well in the legal profession. Did you have the opportunity to go to university? Uh, I did, actually. Um, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Sydney. I started that. I lasted uh, one semester, and then I was actually I was rallying at the time, and I thought I could, could do both, and um, I wanted to go over and compete in this uh, event in the UK sort of one make series against lots of other juniors but to do that I obviously needed some money and I had four jobs at the time and I so I deferred uni for a semester so I could uh, fit in all those jobs and I thought I would work save up the money go and do this one event and see what happens and then then you know go back to uni after that if I needed to and um, I went over and did that that race and I I came back to Australia um, over Christmas and then basically packed up my bags and moved to the UK uh, beginning of the following year and um yeah, so I've completed uh, two subjects <laughs> of my degree. Were you one of those students like a lot of my mates who would sit through lectures and draw pictures of cars? <laughs> Their notebook would have drawings of exotic cars with low suspensions and so on. Did, did that happen with you? <laughs> well, actually, doing my sort of high school certificate when I was finishing school, I actually decided to, for my design and technology project, I built a racetrack and then I had the, the local council involved and yeah it was great so I managed to at least apply sort of my love of motorsport into school and um, I think honestly what motorsport taught me at school and, and you know whilst I didn't finish university but I did better than I expected at school but because I was so busy it actually made me a lot more productive with the time that I did spend so definitely good lessons learned in that when you're trying to fit so much in uh, to, to a small amount of time. Is this a, a real size race circuit? <laughs> no, it was just, it was a model. Yeah, it's just a model, and and all the planning that went into you know where it would go. Uh, it was actually there's a um, just use land next to Eastern, Eastern Creek that they were 
um, at the time looking at all different options for what it could be. So I was um, proposing that we build a rally track, which unfortunately never went ahead in real life, but it's great to be able to plan something that could have happened. So council got involved just as an experience of what you had to go through to get approval? Well, yeah, I mean, it was just in the sort of the design stage and, you know, what that area, you know, was used for obviously in a, in a motorsport precinct and then what other clubs could use it and so what the track had to have to allow for rallying and for off-road and for, for motorbikes and that sort of thing so we could um, yeah, go through that and get, you know, get the some real world experience, I guess, from my end. So I had a great time doing it. And then my mum threw the, uh, the model out, which I was very uh, disappointed about. <laughs> <laughs> Parents are like... Yeah. <laughs> How old were you then when you went to the UK and what was the event? Uh, so I was 20. It was a round of the British Rally Championship. It was the final round of the, the British Rally Championship season. So they have a, it was called the Suzuki Swift Sport Cup, which was a one-make series for very similar to road cars, not modified. You know, had the safety equipment, but that was about it. Um, that was a very standard, very cheap, um, and it was sort of an up-and-coming category for, for young people to get involved at a relatively low cost. And everything was the same, so it really then came down to um, the drivers. Had you driven that type of car, that Suzuki, much before? Never, never, and it was left-hand drive, and I met my co-driver the night before the rally. So, um, yeah, it was, in hindsight, a bit crazy, but I'm so glad I did it, and it's what we um, got a puncture early on in the rally, so the overall result wasn't great, but we set some top three stage times and, and did enough to to prove that we had potential and, and it was from there that I met all the contacts and was able to, to put something together to go back and, and compete in the full season the following year. In the same Suzuki category? Yes, yes. So I, I competed in that series um, in the 2009 British Rally Championship. So was that a team? How, how did that come about? How did you get that introduction? Um, so I, well, I just got on the phone. I was actually um, watching, we used to watch the British Championship was um, shown on Foxtel over in Australia. So I would watch it and, and sort of did a lot of research online, I guess, and then just picked up the phone and, and rang a bunch of people and managed to get in touch with the team that ran the cars. And they, I mean, they were incredible. They basically let me, or leased me the car for, for next to nothing. And I was allowed to effectively come into the workshop and, and prepare it with, with their guidance. And they never charged me anything for that and they facilitated the opportunity for me to be able to um to come and sort of get started and then and then try and find some other sponsorships for entry fees and cars and and that sort of thing so um i was very fortunate to to have the generosity of those kind of people and then yeah i spent most of the days in the workshop doing the the preparation on the car and, and organizing everything around it there is all those elements isn't it there is the preparation of the car but there is the whole management of the exercise you were integrally involved in that weren't you oh yeah it's um i mean the bit i guess you see on the outside is is probably the smallest bit that goes into motorsport i mean you've obviously got the cars and the preparation and the work that's involved in in getting them to the events and the logistics themselves are going to the events you've got a, a crew of people that are coming in at that stage it's all you know volunteers that are just coming out on their weekends to help um, so they're involved in the process then all the, the administration side um, obviously you've got a co-driver as well and all the preparation for um that goes into that side of things so it's and then yeah sponsorship to to make to, to cover those costs and and how you find and manage and and provide back to those sponsors so it's um yeah it's a full-time job plus some um, how did you find the volunteers? I think, like, maybe a few people just saw this crazy Aussie over on the other side of the world. <laughs> no <laughs> idea what she was doing and maybe felt a bit sorry for me. <laughs> um, 
but uh, you know, it's an incredible sport. So I was really lucky with the the Monster Sport Europe team that were running the cars. That the the team within that who were running a bunch of cars kind of tagged me along with what they were doing. That was at the beginning where the majority came, and then some rally friends in Australia had some some rally friends in Ireland for the following year, and they had a spare car, and you know, out of the generosity, and they saw that I was on the other side of the world with their family, and they basically welcomed me into their family, and um, and they all helped, you know, following year. So it was just, you know, things that I guess you pick up from from being over there and on the ground and in the thick of it, and people seeing what you're doing and and wanting to get involved and, and creating. I guess environment around you from from being there, which was was the best thing about being over there and on the ground and being ready for when those opportunities came. Doing a whole series is rather extensive. Did you stay in salubrious hotels? <laughs> uh, no, not particularly. Um, so some friends from the workshop where they sort of rented their houses. I had a friend and who was on a, a little farm just out of. Milton Keynes in, in the UK for the first year and they had a, a barn that they converted with some living quarters at the end of it. So I rented that, which was yeah very salubrious. Um, and yeah, it was always as, as cheap as we could find and then there was definitely a few nights in the back seat of the car as well. I'd heard you'd had to sleep in the barn, but at least it's been converted. Yes, yeah. I had a bedroom, I had a bathroom, I had a little you know electric stove top that you plugged into the wall so I could cook a microwave, sink. Yeah, it was <laughs> five star. Without any assumption, is learning to cook one of the key features you learnt from your rallying career? Well, I guess, you know, trying to fend for yourself. For me, it was living out of home, but also out of home on the other side of the world. So, yeah, I guess confronting all those just realities that you do as you grow up and start to become more independent, but doing that completely out of your comfort zone and, you know, far away. That was daunting, definitely, but you also learn everything very fast and grow up quite quickly. Did you get homesick? I did, yeah, I definitely did. Yeah, it's, you know, been away from all those networks. And I guess at that time, like I remember on my, my 21st first birthday, I was actually moving into the barn. <laughs> so I basically spent the, the, the day in the workshop and then the evening of my 21st was moving, uh, doing loads in this little Peugeot 106 that I bought for a few hundred pounds, moving all my stuff into the barn. So it was a bit of a, it was a very humbling 21st birthday when you see, you know, like friends at home going out and, and that sort of thing. But the flip side of that is having the opportunities and doing what you love and, and being over there pursuing what you're passionate about. I mean, there's nothing that comes close to that. So it's all, all sacrifices that are, you know, well worth it and that were justifiable in my mind. The different cars is one thing. Is rallying in the UK different to Australia? Or were there some adaptability that you had to have for the type of event that it was? It's just a lot bigger. I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of rain, so there's a lot of wet rallies. Um, <laughs> you know, Australia has fantastic roads as well, so there's definitely, there's more tarmac events, so that was new for me. But the biggest thing would have just been the depth of the fields and there's so many different one-make series and so many juniors and young people. So the competition at the lower levels is, is really strong all the way up. So it's just, it's great being immersed in, in the really competitive environment. And you did well in the series? We started off well. We won the first two rounds. I crashed in the next two. <laughs> but coming into the final round, we um, there were three of us, effectively, that could win the, the series. And it was whoever won that event would win the series overall. So we came into that event. We were doing really well. We had a 40-something second lead with two stages to go in the rally. Um, and the fuel pump failed. So that was definitely one of the toughest moments 
definitely to date and probably in general, that that goes up there as one of the most disappointing um, things. Obviously, your first year to win it and to be able to come out and to be on the brink of, of winning would have been amazing. And also the, the prize was some money that would go into making the following year possible. So from two accounts, it was very devastating to uh, to have that happen. I once had a mate who tried to be a professional golfer and he said, you see Tiger Woods putt for millions of dollars. You think that's pressure. He said, I was putting for a, in New Zealand in order to win enough money to buy my airfare home. Yeah. Now that was pressure. Yeah, definitely. And at that point, you, you know, you're trying to prove yourself and that so much rides on that fact. So do you think you'll ever go back to uni and do a wonderful project on the economics and that of <laughs> a, a rally team? I would never say no. I mean, part of me would be, and it's just, it's really time dependent. At the moment, there's no time. Um, but if I had the time, I would definitely would like to go back and, and do something. And, you know, I definitely see myself working in the business side of the sport in the future. So, mm. yeah, it's something that's still an interest. Molly, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to Overdrive. Molly Taylor is a great ambassador for motoring and motor racing. Having just arrived back from competing in the Dakar Rally, she attended the Australian launch of the latest Subaru BRZ sports car held at Sydney Motorsport Park. We had a brief chat about driving the BRZ and then a little later a more detailed discussion on Dakar. Both of those conversations showed her passion for enjoying driving in a wide variety of situations. The latest BRZ has much improved suspension and general driver dynamics. Subaru was bold enough to let us drive around the race circuit in the previous model and then to compare it to their latest edition. And now the new model on the same corner. The difference was pronounced. We will do a more complete video road test soon. While the BRZ now has a new 2.4 litre engine, the question arose, as it has at every Subaru press conference since the car was first launched, as to why the BRZ does not have a turbo version from the WRX. Of course it would be nice, but is it absolutely necessary? I had spoken in the past to Subaru's general manager, Blair Reed about how driving a car that does not have enormous horsepower places its own particular emphasis on driver skills to get the most out of a vehicle. Well, I just had to ask Molly about that. We were talking to Blair about the enjoyment, actually, of driving a car that's not super powerful. Yeah. You actually have to think about it more than with a big, powerful engine, you just plant your foot and feel good. Yeah, and I think there's so much, like, when you're driving, it's so much more than just about engine and power, you know. It's about all the dynamics of, of the car, and I think that's where this, this balance is so nice because mm. you've got just a right enough power in the chassis and you know, it's enough that you can still have a lot of fun with without being too much in any respect. So, yeah, I think it's that that balance of the driving experience not just about one com one component the manuals uh, in many ways now becoming a little bit slower not as efficient do you still like to drive a manual yeah for sure yeah it's i mean it's fun to drive and it's yeah as you say this is 
just about the, the driving experience. I mean, I think it's still like autos definitely have their, their place. And um, as you say, the technology of the automatic transmissions now, you're not, you don't feel like you're lacking performance or anything like that if you have an auto, but there's also something, something pleasurable about hill and towing and all that stuff. It's just fun, you know. From your rally days, your rally school days as well. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, now like our rally car has a sequential gearbox, so it's not even, you know, this is the time where we get to actually enjoy having an H pattern gearbox and you know, we don't even use the clutch really unless you're taking off the line in, in the rally cars. So it's, yeah, it's nice to still have that experience. You learnt on a manual, I presume. Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely learned that way. The next generations probably won't won't get that that privilege, which would be a shame, but uh, yeah, I've still got the old Subaru Brumby in the shed, so my sister's... Oh, really? My sister is learning to drive in that already, so that's the... Maybe he's still a bit young, but it's, I've got the plan. <laughs> Do you feel a certain uh, responsibility for your sister? Do you, in sense of uh, helping her to learn what's what's good and what's not? I mean, I think she's worried that I'm going to be a really bad influence on him <laughs> growing up, which is probably true. <laughs> so, I'm not sure if she's happy or more concerned. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> with driving yeah exactly yeah yeah he's going to get all the wrong influences i don't think she wants him to get into motorsport but we'll see we'll see what happens day and a half ago you arrived at midnight back in sydney from the dakar were you tired yeah i think there's still definitely a bit of jet lag hanging around but yeah i mean awesome to come back and i really want you know made sure after dakar that my flights worked so i could be here today because yeah it's just super exciting to see the new brz and it's been so long since we've been able to do this too so i feel like it's mm. it's reuniting back with the family so i wanted to make sure no matter what i was here the dakar it's a case in your rallying where it's almost graded roads in a way was the dakar much more uh, rougher terrain was it different how 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 did you find it yeah the dakar terrain i mean everything about the dakar is different to anything i've done but the terrain compared to rallying very different you do have some some gravelly type roads that are similar to rallying but um the majority is everything else uh, a lot of sand massive massive sand dunes some some really rocky sections some some areas where we're literally rock crawling uh, so you 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 see every type of terrain possible in the Dakar. So it wasn't as pacey as a normal rally, it was much more in endurance over tough terrain? Yeah, certainly much more of an endurance event, uh, but the pace is still really high in the sort of in the top uh, competitive bunch in the categories. The pace is still, uh, still very high, but I guess it's more of a it depends on the scenario so there's there's places where you're trying to look after the car and in really rough rocky sections you know you're not pushing as hard as you would on a rally but then in other sections where you can read the road a bit more then you'll be pushing just as hard so i think it's a bit more of a it's more strategic you're more balancing all the different types of risks and conditions and where you can push where you've got to watch the car and and find I think the tricky thing is finding that balance because if you take it easy everywhere you'll be slow if you go maximum attack everywhere you're not going to get the car to the end so it's it's the skill is trying to find that perfect optimum adapting you've got to be very adapting to specific situations yeah you're adapting to, to every every condition uh, every condition trying to work out where to go you're trying to read the road and the terrain all the time and try and you know read the sand dunes and read the lay of the land to try and predict uh, what, what you're going to find because it's uh, it's all blind as well. Mm. What was the car you were in? So for the Dakar we were driving a Can-Am side-by-side vehicle. Right, side-by-side, -side, what does that mean? Uh, so they're, they're basically like a sports utility vehicle. So originally designed for farmers uh, and then I think 
worked out just how versatile and how cool they are and um, yeah we make some some modifications from the sporting side mm. uh, but yes it's basically like a like a side by like a yeah sports buggy type of thing so open uh, open sides and you know open mm. wheels and, oh, and that okay. sort of stuff but mm. they're um yeah su super fun super capable Sorry, I just interrupt. We're about to have some lunch. Okay. Cool. No but worries. Just five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. All good. But there was a category beside it which was even more modified versions of those, wasn't there? Yeah, so the way off-road works, or for Dakar, for example, you have yeah, everything. So we have the, the sports utility side-by-side -side vehicle or buggies. Um, ours are based very much on the production spec that Can-Am deliver to everyday customers. Uh, then you have a side-by-side -side sort of off-road buggy prototype class where you can you know start from scratch and build your own chassis and, and do all that sort of thing and then you have the cars um, yeah based more on production models and then modifying them and then you also have trucks as well that people <laughs> drive in Dakar which is insane so yeah you have a huge broad spectrum of cars. You don't aspire to the trucks? Oh man the car, I would love to go for a run in the trucks just to see what it's like but oh man they go yeah it's that's Different. impressive it's unreal yeah yeah one has visions of sand and what have you were you like a bedouin did you have to sleep <laughs> in a tent <laughs> we we had motorhomes so we were very spoiled uh, a lot of people yeah use tents um <laughs> but yeah you're basically going from from makeshift service park to makeshift service park every night changing locations pretty much so yeah you're very much on the road um yeah for the two weeks you were with a big team weren't you yeah, so I was with the Can-Am South Racing team. So they run sort of within the broader team. We, we were part of the Can-Am factory team, but within the, the broader team, they had uh, about 20 cars in Dakar. So a massive, massive crew. The expense of that must have been enormous. What's it cost to enter? <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's tens of thousands to, to enter Dakar. So mm. yeah, when you multiply that out, it's um, it's not a cheap exercise at all, but it's it's such a big event and there's so much that goes into it that it, it really is a, you know, it's a huge, huge undertaking and there's a lot of people that yeah, do it the the factory level and the professional level. And then there's also a lot of people that, you know, that's the bucket list and that's the one thing you want to achieve in, in your lifetime. So I mean, it's always been a bucket list thing for me. So it's, yeah, it, it's not a, it's not a small small undertaking to put it together. How did your emotions and your physically feel over the period of the time? Did it uh, did it uh, ebb and flow? Did it develop? Did <laughs> it get tiring? Yeah, I think in Dakar you experience every every emotion. <laughs> you ride uh, you know every roller coaster over the two weeks. You know you've got the the excitement, the atmosphere, the buzz, being out in the middle of the desert, and you know everything that comes along with that. And then you've got you know just sitting in a car for 12 hours a day every day for two weeks and how draining that that can be and when things don't go wrong and you're repairing the car on the side of the road and mm -hmm. like one day we did 200 kilometers in the dunes in the dark and just all these kind of yeah epic experiences and all the highs and all the lows and everything wrapped into this really intense two weeks so it's yeah it's an incredible incredible adventure and it's equally enjoyable and tough <laughs> do you feel scared at any time uh i definitely felt Nervous all the time. I mean, for me, being in in some of the sand dune environments is very new for me. So it's definitely when you're climbing up sand dunes that are, you know, as tall as mountains. It's <laughs> yeah, you definitely get that sort of hard in your mouth moment a few times. But I think it, you know, it's just a case like anything new. And then once you start to learn and adapt and what to expect, you can uh, become more comfortable.
When you went to England and rallying, you hopped into a car you didn't know, it was driving on the other side of the road, <laughs> and I think you won it, didn't you? It, uh, it did yeah. very well. The, uh, this was, again, something you had to adapt to very quickly? Yeah, it's, it's something, again, different that you have to, to adapt to and, and learn quickly and throw yourself in the deep end and outside your comfort zone and all of that. So I think that's, I mean, that's what I enjoy doing, and, and particularly this year, being able to do so many different types of motorsport. Hmm. Um, and then just, you know, in rallying in general, you're always trying to push that boundary and try something new and the amount you learn and grow from those experiences you did know you as, as daunting as it is you know you know it's worth it at the end of the day do you feel lonely out there was there, <laughs> was there? i mean when you when you're in the middle of the desert and you're lost you feel very lonely <laughs> for a second. You feel like there's no one there's no one coming to get you um but you know we had an incredible team and and yeah you do have moments where it is very tough but I think the fact you're surrounded by all these people that are going through the same emotions you are you know it's like you're this yeah, very uh, close bond between everyone because you're out there just grafting together. Mm. The, uh, I interviewed Rano Altonen who said that the navigator in the car was always the, the general manager. Yes. Was, you, you would have found that in Dakar too? Yeah, the navigator's the, the navigator, but the, yeah, the psychologist, the team coordinator, the, you know, they have, they have so many roles. It's really, I mean, it really is a team sport, but the, the navigator definitely um, yeah, it does have to get you from point A to point B, but you know, there's very much so many other things that um, yeah go into it. Psychologist, did you, did you <laughs> have to lie on a couch at the end of the night? I think I probably do need to go lie on a couch for a while after that. No, but just you know, you want to try and keep the vibe in the car good, and when you've got two people that are going through really tough things, and maybe tough things at different times or, or whatever, so it's really important that you. Do you have that environment where you can support each other? Physically fit, is that uh, one of the key elements? Yeah, certainly fitness is, is an important element. Um, I found mentally probably the Dakar tougher than the physical side. Oh. Um, but it's still, you know, you're in the car all day, every day when you've got to jump out of the car and change a puncture or fix a car on the side of the road when it's 30 whatever degrees and jump back in and keep going. And the stages themselves were driving from you know three to six hours so yeah being able to concentrate in those environments you need to be physically fit to be able to back that up the next day and the next day do it at once you might be able to kind of pull through but if you've got to do it every day for two weeks you've got to yeah be able to cope with that when you went on your adventure and went overseas and got into England you really had to be part and parcel of getting a team together and, and even the mechanics of it I believe you worked on as well was that a good background for Dakar? Yeah, certainly you have to be a good bush mechanic in Dakar and yeah, there was it was a lot of times, I mean unfortunately you don't, you don't want to be in the situation where you're repairing the car on the side of the road but unfortunately that happened to us a few times so yeah. I now am uh, very proficient at changing ball joints and can-ams and all those sort of things, but yeah, you're out there on your own um, and yeah, if you want to get to the finish you've got to be able to hobble together bits and pieces to, to get yourself through. How did the drive come about? Um, when I was overseas doing Extreme E, uh, then I wanted to get some more off-road experience to help with that and then yeah, got connected with uh, South Racing who are you know, a massive team in mm. Europe and just spoke to them about trying to do some off-road events and we went and did a small event in Spain and, and that went well and then we just, you know, Dakar's always been on the bucket list and, and they're one of the biggest, well they were the biggest team in Dakar, the most amount of cars in Dakar this year so um, yeah, we just kept talking and one thing led to another and was really... Yeah, really grateful to have the opportunity with Canem to, to do it. Do you have an ongoing uh, relationship with them? Yeah, certainly um, the plan is to, to keep doing more events with them. We're trying to 
I guess not at what that looks like exactly, but yeah, certainly, um, yeah, the intention is to, to keep building on what we've started. Mm. Yeah. Did you have to do a lot of publicity stuff while you're there? Yeah, there was a fair fair bit of media media stuff. Um, yeah, I think it goes with goes with the territory, and we've got some some cool content that's actually coming out soon, so that'll be exciting. Okay, and where did you finish? Uh, in the end, we finished fourteenth overall. So our our aim was a top ten, and um, you know our pace was always in the, the top ten. But we yeah. Um, yeah, I made a few mistakes, so we dropped a few hours. Um, I just uh, just a couple of um, incidents where we yeah damaged the car and had to yeah stop and repair it and <laughs> lost a few hours in the process. So yeah, unfortunately, wasn't the wasn't the end result that we wanted, but we always knew the the main target was to finish Dakar and and what a. Uh, Difficult process that is just to, to get through all of those things and get to the finish. Is that 14th of everything, cars and bikes, or just cars? 14th in the, the T4 in cars, the T4, yeah. In so it was about, yes. I think, 47 or 48 cars. Oh, OK, yeah, because yeah. it's immense international competition. Yeah, there's hundreds of vehicles that enter, yeah, yeah. Thank you for your time. No worries. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Molly Taylor, Bruce Potter and Mark Wesley for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or look for the socials and podcasts. Just search for Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.